how did you get your start? Or when did you know you wanted to do broadcasting? Um, I got my start in college. I was a scholarship basketball player at an NAI school in Iowa. And the NAI. And I was able to, I, I found out quickly that I was not good enough to play there. They were a really good school at that level. They were ranked number one in the nation most of the year, my senior year. And it was abundantly clear by the time I was a sophomore that I was never going to play on that varsity team. So I wanted to keep going on the road trips and be around the team. And the way for me to do that was to uh, join the broadcast team as a color commentator who knew the players and knew the game a little bit. And I really just fell in love with the medium from there. And it, it spiraled <laughs> out of control from that point on. Do you remember who you worked under? Who was the lead voice for that team? His name was Scott France, and he's one of the really talented guys that just never got a break. I don't know if he wanted it all that bad, but he is an extremely talented broadcaster. He just never really wanted to leave uh, the Sioux City, Iowa area. He was really comfortable. He had a good family life and a full-time DJ job, and he was comfortable, but he had all the talent and professionalism in the world. So how long did you stay at that broadcast position? And then where did you go afterwards after you left your team that you couldn't play basketball for, which you were the number two guy? Well, I was, I did, uh, I became the co-sports director of the student station my junior year. So I was co-sports director for two years at, uh, I don't even remember what the call letters are anymore, KMSC, that's what they were. Um, and I stayed there for the two years that I was still in college. I graduated and moved on from there. I got my first radio job as a professional, uh, pretty close to right after graduation at a little station in a small town in Iowa called Denison. So what was your job in Denison at that station? I was a full-time salesperson and the number two play-by-play -play guy, which meant I got to go on all the long road trips that our number one guy didn't do. So usually we would try to do um, either the boys or the girls because they were in different places. And uh, when they were a long way away and our guy who had been there for 25 years just didn't want to drive three hours there and back, I would get those reps. And uh, Or if it was going to be if it was expected to not be a particularly competitive game, sometimes I would get those. But you know what? I got a lot of basketball reps. We would cover a lot of area towns around district and region tournament time. And mm -hmm. we have, it was all hands on deck. We would send four broadcasters out each night, and we would do rotating play-by-play where we'd do like 10 minutes of the game and then pass it off to another game. And then if our game was interesting, we would come back. It was really interesting, and I've never really seen anyone else doing it. I don't know how great of radio it was, but it was the chance for me to get a whole bunch of low-pressure reps in a situation that even if I did poorly, no one was particularly going to care. So did the move to... South Dakota happened. Yes. So I know you started the Say the Damn Score pod 
in South Dakota and you basically transferred it over to Minnesota. But right. who gave you what who gave you the idea for the powder? Was that just an idea that germinated in your head? Yeah, that was let's start off with going to South Dakota after three yeah. years in Denison. I got a job in Aberdeen for mm-hmm. I was the voice of Presentation College, which is an NAI school. I did all of their football and basketball, uh, mm-hmm. select volleyball, baseball, softball, pretty much anything they wanted. Did a weekly coaches show. Also did advertising sales for the radio station as my main source of income. And I got that job because when I just applied for it blindly, and the owner of the station recognized the reference of Scott France, who he had just mentioned earlier, because he worked for his station was also owned by the same owner of Aberdeen. He owned multiple stations. So he called Scott, and he gave a great review, and I'm pretty sure that's what got me the job. As far as the podcast, I just, what I found living in Aberdeen, South Dakota, it's about three hours from anywhere that even remotely matters. It's three hours from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, three hours from Fargo, North Dakota, and it's just very isolated. There's not a lot of other broadcasters that come through there, and I found networking a difficult challenge. So what I decided to do was, you know what, if I can't meet them in person, I'm going to talk to them over the phone. And I started a podcast to help build uh, my personal brand and to allow me to to network. And I figured those stories were things that a lot of people would enjoy around the country, not just me. So uh, that's where the podcast idea came from. I started off doing it in the newsroom at Dakota Broadcasting in Aberdeen, South Dakota. And after... Oh, a little while, I realized that it need, I needed to buy my own equipment. It was just getting to be a real pain to have to drive into the studio and uh, find time around when other people weren't using it for actual professional reasons. So uh, I bought my own equipment about six months to a year into it, and uh, now I'm almost four and a half years in and not going to slow down anytime soon. Do you remember who your first guest was on the first ever pod? And how do you feel like it turned out? <laughs> it was Mark Boyle of the Indiana Pacers. I met I him. I remember that interview because I remember listening to that all the way back through the episodes. I met that him. was interesting. I met him at the National Sports Media Association uh, National Seminar. And so we had talked. He, was, he had listened to my work a couple times. It had been helpful. So I figured I'd ask him to do it. If you know Mark, he's a really, really nice guy. He's a really helpful guy, but he's a little bit gruff and direct. And what happened that first time was that I made—I didn't realize that Indianapolis was in Eastern time. I should have double-checked. I've double-checked every other time with one exception since then. And uh, but I was off. I was cooking a pot of spaghetti thinking, oh, I'm ready to go for this interview, going to finish this, and then go over there and record. And I get a text, do you, do you not need me anymore? And I'm like, of course I do. He's like, well, where are you? And I looked, looked it up real quick, and I'm like, is that in a different time zone? And sure enough, everything east of Chicago is in a different time zone. And uh, so I just said, hey, I will sprint down to the station right now. Turned off my stove, went down there, and uh, set it up quickly, and we did it. 
but I think I had to do it in a different studio than I was planning on doing it in because the timing was off. Mm -hmm. And I ended up recording his answers, which is the important part, but it didn't record my questions. And I thought it was, or like my questions were really poorly. So I had to go in and re-record all my questions and mix them together. It was a long, uh, I don't want to call it a nightmare. It was inconvenient, but it was... It was a long process to get episode one on the air, and I don't know. I don't go back and listen to that far back because I don't think it was particularly good. But, uh, you, you know, you live and you learn, and you improve over over time. Welcome to the land of broadcast horror stories that you have made the end of your podcast, sir. <laughs> I think I've told that one before. I don't remember for sure. I think you may have. I don't know, but I know you had... What was it, the 100th episode or something like that with a lot of basically the horror stories from all the broadcasters you've had over the years on your show? Yeah, I do that uh, every other Halloween, and I was inspired by the Simpsons Little Treehouse of Horrors. And so I came up with the little broadcast booth of horrors, and I thought that would just be a fun way to uh, probably – I don't do it every Halloween. I do it – so far it's been every other Halloween. You need to have enough time to build up some more episodes to get enough of them, but it's – it's a fun thing. I like that. It's part of one of my personal favorite parts of the podcast. Album's definitely entertaining. Hope you can get some more scary sound effects to add to it eventually. <laughs> There's only so many, uh, <laughs> so many horror movies out there that have yeah, really. recognizable music. So we'll probably use a lot of the same ones. There's some new ones. I don't know. Uh, I'll have to look into that. But we have a little while. I'll probably do it this October if I have time to get it done. Cause That's what I was going to ask you if that was coming back for this year or not. Those episodes take a lot of time to edit and produce, which so I need to start. If I want to do it, you really need to start working on it and going through September, all of them September. in September. So we'll see if I'm able to do that or not, depending on maybe we still won't have any work with all this coronavirus stuff, so maybe I'll have lots of time. Who knows? Hey, I really you know hope what, that's I, not true. Let's hope we can keep control of it and we can get back to our normal lives. Yeah, this is uh, definitely throwing a big monkey wrench in a lot of my plans trying to trying to grow plans. this small business that uh, I've come to rely on, and it's it's a scary time. I'm hoping for a month or two, but... I mean, a lot of what you hear is that this could go on for quite some time, which would be problematic for for me and a lot of people in this industry. We're living in unknown times, man. Like I tell people that have asked, like, what do you think on it? I'm like, you know what? We thought 2011, we thought the 9-11 thing in 2001 changed the world. It did. This is also going to change the world. So just be prepared because the world is going to change whether we want it to or not. Yep, that's uh, that's definitely true, and I don't really know what to expect. I wish there's a lot of smarter people than me that are spending a lot of time and energy on this, and I just kind of try to try to do what they say. I've tried to stay in my home as much as possible. Uh, I do have a part-time job that is now my only uh, real source of income right now, where I work in a retail store, a Home Depot part-time, that I've been boosting hours, so I'm not able to totally quarantine myself but um i go to work and i don't do much else that's that's for sure how did the bob costas interview come about say that again the bob costas interview which is probably awesome due to the fact that i didn't think it was possible to get bob costas but you did 
Um, so that came about by I found out the contact for his PR person, and I sent it to her. Said, "Hey, would he be interested in doing this? It's here's some other people I've had, blah blah blah." And she said, "Yeah, it, it will just be hard to find the time, but uh, stay in touch." And so I emailed her once a month. Keep going. Everything all right there? Keep going, Rickus. Okay. Scam we'll get out of that later. Well, I inter- I emailed his PR person once a month for over a year. Wow. And uh, I like to uh, compare it to if you watch the Shawshank Redemption, Andy Dufresne sent letters trying to get books for the prison library for uh, every week for a month. And it wasn't quite that persistent, but eventually I got a little bit of time and he did it. And it was, uh, it was pretty, it was, it's really the only one outside of that first one that I was nervous for. And I actually, so usually I call the person. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't give out his phone number, so I had to find a studio at a radio station, which at the time I worked at a radio station in Yankton, South Dakota, and he he called in. It was a blocked number, unknown number, and it was, hello, Logan, this is Bob Costas. And it's like, yeah, like, I didn't recognize it immediately, but uh, I was so nervous that when I did the intro that I don't ever actually keep. I do a little fake intro. And then I record a different one that talks about my life or whatever I'm feeling like for two or three minutes uh, to start. And I do that later. But he goes, Logan, you can do better than that. And I, so I'm like, oh, man, I just butchered a basic intro with Bob Costas. <laughs> he said he'd give me a half hour. And I said, hey, I've got more if you want to talk about it, if you have time. And he goes, yeah, this is fun. We'll keep going. So I figured that meant that he thought it was a good enough interview to to give me 30 extra minutes of his valuable time that he must have at least thought it was going moderately well after that butchered open. Who is your bucket list interviews that you haven't gotten that you want to get on? I would really like to get Jim Nance, Al Michaels, and Marv Alberts. I have, uh, when I started this, I wrote down, as I wasn't sure if I'd be able to get enough guests, and I kind of just made a big list of a bunch of people that said, I can get these people. These are my friends in the business who I'm 99% sure will do it. Then there's like, here's a bunch of people I can probably get that I've either met or connected with or know someone who knows someone. And then I put, here's the list of people to faint if you ever get them. And it was like (laughs) Bob Costas, Marv Albert, Jim Nance, Doc Emmerich. Um, I think there's only four or five names on it. And that's the only one off of that. Joe Buck was on it. Uh, that's the only one on that one that I've been able to get <laughs> is Bob Costas. But but I've had Kenny Albert, which... Uh, now, that was, one was pretty fun, and I do have to give you credit, Charlie Steiner, because I didn't think you'd get that one, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, he was I, uh, He was actually let, very willing to do it, and he's a, let, he's a let's unique back bird. Up on the, let's back up to the Kenny Albert one, and then we'll come back to Steiner in just a second. How did you get the voice of the Rangers, occasional NFL guy, occasional Knicks guy, basically jack of all trades, master of none, Kenny Albert, the son of the legendary, yes, Marv Albert. It was actually not a hard one. Once uh, 
once you start to get to know people, it's not that hard to get contact information. And I basically just got his email and sent him one back. And he said, uh, yeah, I'm willing to do this. Let's just push it back. I think I sent it in, um, I sent it during the winter, I believe. And he said, let's do it after hockey season in June. And that's what happened. We did it later. Uh, had to wait a little while, but it was, he was totally willing to do it. And I thought it, that one turned out really well. Huge fan of Kenny Albert's work. I do listen to him when I get the chance with Dave Maloney and the Rangers when I get a chance. It's not often, but I, when I get a chance to listen to him on the radio side. And Charlie Steiner? Charlie Steiner was the same thing. I belonged to a couple organizations that have directories. He was involved. He was listed in it. And I just sent a cold call email. And he said he'd do it. And I think we did it within like a week or two. He was uh, really not that hard to... He was very open to doing it once uh, I was able to get in touch with him. That's how most of them are. Most of them, I don't have to wait too long, but it's, uh, you never know. I've always found, uh, so far I've found that when I have to deal with PR people, it's a lot harder. So if I can get to them directly, I, I try to go that route. I like that method because I do that with a lot of people that I feel like I know as broadcast friends, even though I've never met, but I've emailed there, so. And sometimes they don't answer, and you just can't take it personally. And you say, okay, first of all, maybe he's not even looking at this email. Maybe it's an old one. Maybe it's uh, his PR person who answers those type of things for him. You just never know. And you don't take it personal, but I've found that I think only – I'm trying to think only one or two people have basically just said no and – Outside of that, everyone has said, you know, I'll do it if we can find the time. And most of them, eventually, if you're persistent and they find out that you're taking them seriously, they'll, they'll find some time for you. Now, the John Bulls interview was pretty good. I do have to give you credit for that one. And I know you say you don't interview a lot of hockey folks. <clears throat> I think, what is it, Forsman? I think you interviewed the Bulls Predators, I think. Say that again. I think you mean I talked to the voice of the Hurricanes and I think the voice of the Predators and one and Jimmy Albert. I think that's it hockey wise. I think I've talked to um, some smaller scale hockey broadcasters. I talked to uh, early on. I talked to Curtis Anderson, who is the voice of the Sioux City Musketeers, and I've talked hmm. to Alex Ronsley, who is a hockey broadcaster and also the owner of SportscasterLife.com, another great online resource, but. I'm definitely trying to – I haven't talked to Pete Weber, the voice of the Predators, yet. Um, I would expect I, that to come soon. I don't want to – I think if everything goes right, I think I might get him after I get you, after you and I are done here. Yeah, I, I expect that that will happen soon. I don't want to uh, say for sure when. We don't have that far set up, but um, <laughs> definitely have some good episodes coming up, so I'm excited about that. But, yeah, I do. I just got into hockey this year. Uh, doing my first broadcasts, and I really like calling the sport, so I think I'm going to just try to talk to it's, – it's, I really haven't – and as you said, I haven't had many hockey guys on, so I'm going to try and talk to a few more. It was popular enough, uh, put, did some good download numbers, so apparently people want it, and who am I not to give the people what they want? Yeah, it always comes back to the people. Yes. What do they want to hear? What's the material they want? Sometimes, you know, I mean, that's true. But sometimes, I mean, I look at this, this is my podcast, and I just talk to the people that I want to talk to and hope that uh, uh, sure. people find it interesting. But 
Um, I, I should say that was definitely an example of, hey, people like this, I should do more of this, so I'm going to keep doing it. I know you've done some championship games. I think, was that in the same college you told me about, or was that another, or was that the, in South Dakota before you moved to Minnesota? What do you mean championship games? So I do, when, um, when you were caught, when you were calling, um, in South, in, um, South Dakota, it might've been the Panthers or something like that. I can't remember exactly. So I've done like several championship games throughout my career, going back to, uh, we would do small schools in Denison, Iowa. We would follow them. Uh, we would pick them up in regions or districts or whatever they called them there. I don't even remember. Everybody calls them something different in each state. But uh, the tournament leading up to the state tournament, we would pick up a couple teams, and we would follow them as far as they go. And we called a couple state championship teams there um, in boys' and girls' basketball. I'm trying to think. I don't think... We had any state champions in South Dakota that I can think of that I called. Um, I do do, the last two years, I do the National Junior College uh, National Tournament TV broadcast. And I just recently got done with that. So I did two national championship games for junior college uh, over the last two years. And that was a lot of fun. But... To me, championships, I mean, they're fun to call, don't get me wrong, but I don't think that that calling a championship makes you a better broadcaster. It doesn't. It's right. just you have no control over it. It's fun. It's You don't have to necessarily create your own energy because usually a championship game, it just uh, comes on its own. But it really um, – it, it really is fun to do, but it's not something that I judge my broadcasting career by, whether I do championship games or, or whether I do a really good broadcast in the middle of the regular season. To me, it's all the same. Because every game has its own storyline. Really that's true. <clears throat> you really can't get rid of the storyline because the storyline's right in front of your face. Very much so. And basically, the broadcast takes you on its own journey. And sometimes it changes from the storyline, and sometimes it comes back. Yeah, some of the games that I just – you're putting me on the spot here to think about this, but I know I've had some fantastic storylines in games that had very little at stake mm -hmm. as far as uh, standings or championships. For example, the one that jumps out when I was doing presentation college in South Dakota over the summer um, – a student assistant coach and a player who was going to be a senior uh, passed away in a car accident together oh, on their wow. way back to the school for a summer tournament. And oh, the first my. game back, uh, the place was packed. It was against a horrible team, but it was, it was a really important game because they were trying to honor their fallen teammates and, a lot of the families had made the trip there. It was just any game can be a big game. Any game can be important, and you really just have to be ready for every game at, at that time to capture that moment. How do you feel like you used prep, and how much of prep did you feel like you had to learn in your early part of your broadcast career? You have to learn it. So there's two things. The first thing 
I think just about everybody relies on somebody else to begin with to say, hey, what does your spotting board look like? Can you email me a template? And then you see what they do. And over time, and I still, I still use the basic template from Scott France that we talked about uh, at the beginning of this podcast. Now, I have changed it. He probably would not like it because it's not the way he uses it, but I've just kind of tweaked it to make more sense for me. And uh, you just have to figure out what works. You have to figure out where to find the storylines. You have to figure out the right questions to ask coaches that get real answers instead of two-word answers. It's, it's definitely a long process, but uh, over time, I think that my preparation is something that I'm pretty proud of. Uh, I've not felt underprepared in a long time, uh, with very few exceptions that were out of my control. But it was, uh, it's definitely something that I put a lot of value in and I think is important for anybody in the industry to make sure that they master as soon as they can. How many of the rosters do you still keep that you know that you're going to call a game for? And how many do you get rid of when you know you don't have that team anymore? You may only see that team once. I usually don't keep rosters. They're usually pretty available online at this point if I need them again. If they're in the conference or they're, again, if there's someone that I'm likely to see again, I might keep them in a file cabinet just for the purposes of of remembering being able to look back on name pronunciations and starting lineups and stuff like that. But uh, most of that information is pretty readily available online. So I don't keep an extensive file. At the high school, it was probably even harder to get coaches. Yeah. So coaches are hard to get at the high school level. I'm fortunate the school that I work with gives me great access. So I'm always going to get access to at least the coaches with a team that I'm covering. And sure. so that is the most important thing. Usually, I would say about 60% of the time I can get a phone call with the opposing coach lined up leading up to it. But if you can't, especially in sports in a gym like basketball and volleyball, where sure. there's really only a few places they can hide and hang out, is I'll just find them and say, hey, do you got time to chat with me quick, go over name pronunciations and talk about your team, and you can ask questions about storylines. And most of them will be like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's fine. I meant to email you back, and I don't believe them, but they at least know that I tried earlier, and they have enough of a guilt factor that they take the time to visit with me. And then every now and then they just won't. Uh, when that happens, I go to the uh, – try to find an assistant, try to find an athletic director. And if it really comes down to it, I'll just go to the visiting crowd section and try to find some parents and say, hey, I need to know these names. Uh, I don't want to butcher your son's or daughter's name. Tell me what it is. So that's a worst case scenario. But usually I would say 85 to 90% of the time I eventually talk to a coach, whether it's on the phone or in person. What's left for you on your broadcast bucket list or your bucket list in general? <laughs> um, I mean, there's a lot left on my broadcasting bucket list. I want to, my goal is to be a division one college broadcaster or a professional broadcaster or move up the ladder in some way. 
Um, I like doing local high school, especially I like it in a big city because the talent is much better. But mm -hmm. it's uh, and it's been up until our season got suspended because of coronavirus. It had been a pretty successful business venture as well. But I still want to be a Division One football basketball broadcaster in some capacity. Uh, I really have worked hard to get there. I've gotten, I've done one Division One game, and it was awesome. So if nothing else happens, I can say I've at least been there once. But I would like to be the voice of a team again. I really like the dynamic of being able to travel and get to know the players and really build strong relationships with coaches and provide that insight that is just hard to get when you parachute in for a game here or there. How did you decide to create the streaming network that you created for this high school? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I had a job that was going really poorly and I needed to find a different one. And, uh, <laughs> and it's hard to do in a big city to find a radio job and that's all I've ever done. And I had visited with Mike Grimm, who's the voice of the Gophers, right when I moved to Minnesota. And like his work. He said that, uh, hey, I can probably get you in touch with Lakeville North. My kids went there. They have a really good program. I think it would be cool if somebody streamed them. And I talked with the athletic director that summer, and we both liked the idea, but it was too late. We didn't get in touch until late July. Mm -hmm. um, started in well, late August, it would have been a month to figure everything out, find sponsors. It just wasn't realistic to do that year. And then, um, so I just worked odd jobs until I got a radio job that December that just ended up being a really bad fit. They're a nice radio station. There's a lot of good people. Um, I'm not trying to throw them under the bus, but it just wasn't a good fit for either of us. So I left in June of last year maybe july i don't remember for sure but yeah. i went back to mike and i said hey i'm ready to do this if you are if we can check all the right boxes and we did and so i started that i spent uh, july and august just uh selling full time with no income living off of what we had saved with and off my wife's teacher job and it went well enough that uh, we're at least a little more comfortable now still uh Still working a second job part-time, so it's not like I'm making a nice full-time income on it, but it's comparable to uh, introductory um, entry-level radio job, what I'm bringing in, and I think it has a great chance to expand and be pretty lucrative down the road. And I guess that will now bring me to the follow-up question. I guess you met your lovely bride while you were doing broadcasting, or is this like off mic or hat or habit? So I come up with a different story for this every time because I actually <laughs> met her on an online app. So it's uh, usually I say, you know what, I was dog sledding in Alaska, and I, there was a bear that was attacking this beautiful lady, and I had when I punched the bear in the face, and it ran away, and then it was love from there, or uh, yeah. something bizarre but no we actually met online when i was living in aberdeen south dakota as i mentioned it was pretty isolated so the uh, talent pool so to speak was not deep and so i started looking other places and that's actually how we met we did distance for about a year which was really hard but it was pretty clear really early on that it was uh, the right fit for both of us so 
Um, obviously, that's going extremely well. Still together, we're closing in on our three-year anniversary. Well, happy early third year anniversary. I'll just go ahead and get it out there early. Yeah, it's not till uh, June. Well, that's in a couple of months. Yes, so it's coming up, but it's uh, there's still some time to plan on a gift, that's for sure. The give and take from being single broadcaster to now married and partnered, like, what was the adjustments and the things you basically had to learn about yourself instead of being a single guy and now being married and plus being a broadcaster, plus not from time to time not being at home for dinner until late? Well, maybe it helped that we started off with a long-distance relationship since... We got used to functioning and communicating without seeing each other as much. And now it's it's definitely when I'm at home, I really, and I don't always do a great job of this. It's something I'm still working on. But I try to make myself at home and not working on stuff or at least making a certain amount of time. Like if I have to do prep at night, at least take an hour away from that and during busy times to pay attention and talk to her and have dinner and it's it's really important there's definitely a lot of give and take um i told her right away this is what i do uh, you'll probably have to move at some time if you're with me and if that's not okay you should probably break up i really hope that that is not the case and it was not so um she's very understanding and very supportive when i suggested hey let's leave this really stable, well-paying job in South Dakota and just move to Minneapolis so we can be in a major market. Uh, she said, okay. She didn't say, uh, are you sure that's a great idea? She said, okay. She's incredibly supportive and, and it helps that she has roots in this area and really likes it. But again, it was, she's been incredibly supportive. She mostly carries us financially and uh, I love her to death. How tough was it to make that decision to move from basically something stable to basically unknown in Minnesota? Like, what were the pros and the cons? I know the pros is a bigger market, but what are the strengths that you find out? And what were some of the trepidations slash weaknesses did you really have to take into account before you're like, okay, this move has to be made. There's no choice. There's no two ways around it. Well, it never got to that point where it had to be made. I was um, in a stable job making good money radio-wise with my sales in Yankton, South Dakota. And it just felt like I wanted to bet on myself. And I talked to some mentors, and they said uh, to reach some of the goals and to have more opportunities to do, to do some of the things that I wanted to do, they just weren't going to happen in small-town South Dakota. And... Right. So I moved to, I said, we don't have kids yet. We were pretty newly married. If there's a time to just kind of pack it in and take a risk and just move, that that was the time. And so we did it. And it that first year was hard. It's getting easier. It's still not super easy, but it's definitely getting better, minus the coronavirus outbreak. But uh, aside from that, uh, things have been looking up. But it was definitely... I mean, there's a lot of really good broadcasters in this community that no one's ever heard of that do that do high school games and do small college games or do occasional fill-in stints on radio stations that are just like me. They're just as talented. They're 
uh, maybe just as well connected, but they're waiting on a break. And uh, personally, I hope we all get it, but I definitely um, hope that mine comes first, selfishly. Well, hey, it never hurts to be selfish, but don't be so selfish that you don't forget about other people on your way up. No, and I do everything I can to basically help anybody who asks if I can. A lot of times there's not much I can do, but um, when I have an opportunity to pay it forward or to help somebody, I'd go as far out of my way as reasonably could be expected to do so. Final question I have to close this out is when you're done behind the mic, when you're getting close to the end, which we all hope is not soon, we all, we all hope it's a long, happy life. What do you hope people remember you for? Well, again, hopefully, I'm only 34, so hopefully I have the same a, age. <laughs> hopefully I have a lot more years left. It would be problematic. I'm not really good at anything else. I guess I could probably do some kind of marketing or sales job outside of the business and be fine. But this is definitely what I want to do. I'm all in on it. I don't really have a, a plan B, so to speak. This is what I'm doing. Uh, what do I want people to remember me by? Hopefully, A, it's someone who is someone who does a, how do I want to say that? Someone who, someone, someone who worked hard and did the best job that they possibly could and who cared deeply about um, friends, family, and uh, just trying to help the business and make the world a better place in whatever way I can. It seems a little uh, sappy to say so, but that's all really you can do because people don't, you don't get to control the way people think about you. So exactly. I try not to worry about it too much. Oh yeah. One last question. I lied. Sorry. <laughs> but how much of the sales reps when you got sales reps do you still use today? Say that again. How much sales do you still use to this very day? Um, a lot. So every radio job I've ever had has been, they hired me because I've been good at sales and mm -hmm. they basically allow me to do play by play to keep me happy. It's, a, <laughs> it's always been a secondary part of my job from my boss's eyes. Um, and there's certain times of the year where you have to treat it a little bit differently, but I know where I'm getting the majority of my income and the majority of my job stability, it's there. And I think that, I mean, I still use it now. Most of my money that I make on my streaming business, I get a little bit of a stipend per broadcast from the school, but it's not very much. What I rely on is sponsorship sales and going out to local businesses and, and getting their ads on our streaming broadcasts. And uh, that's, that's right up my alley, and I continue to do it. I really like not having someone else breathing down my neck saying, hey, why haven't you sold more this month? Why haven't you pitched this person? And uh, being my own boss and my own manager, but uh, it also takes a lot of discipline. You have to make sure you're doing the work, not just sitting around watching TV <laughs> or taking naps and sleeping in. But no, I definitely still use it, uh, maybe not every day, but pretty frequently. And uh, I'm hoping to use it more as we continue to expand and grow. 
Did you teach yourself how to sell? Or did you read books or who taught you how to sell? Um, there was a consultant that came in and trained people in sales at my first job in Denison, Iowa. And between that and just experience of trial and error is where I've developed most of my methods and that I try to uh, try to use to get deals. I mean, really, when it comes to sales, the biggest mistake that people make is they go in and they just say, hey, we have these games. You should sponsor them. It would be good for you. They don't have a plan as or a reason for why it would be good for them. It's like, hey, you could be part of our Lakeville North broadcast and get exposed to highly focused local customers who could do business with you tomorrow. Like this is a highly focused thing. And we come up with, uh, oh, let's see, an idea for, like I just proposed an idea to a print shop. Hey, you can be on these and we'll create a custom calendar. You can come and take pictures at at the games, turn it into a calendar, and then we'll advertise for people to buy that calendar of Lakeville North athletes uh, on our broadcast. So it's a direct way to bring in income. You have to find a way to show how they're going to make money back from doing it instead of just saying, hey, you should do this because it's a good thing for me. No one cares about you when it comes to that. It's got to make sense for the customer. And I, a lot of the proposals and the things I've seen are very, very short on ideas and benefits for the client. It's more of just a, hey, this would be good for us type thing, if that makes sense. Basically, the, or the ever popular, what's in it for me? Yes, you have to show it what's in it for the person that you're trying to get money from. Why is it worth it for you to give me your money that you worked really hard to earn? Exactly. Well, I think we can close this out. It's about 41 minutes or so, maybe longer than that. But you gave me more than enough of your time. And I know you had to get back to what you were doing, but I thank you for it. All right. Thank you, and good luck, Luther. Thank you.